This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, our digital wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here with my, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something clever. <laughs> just co host. I'm here with her. I'm just here with Colin. So. <laughs> No one's special. Just call him. <laughs> yeah, so we will uh, just roll right into it. Just roll right into it. Cool. So we've got Sid. Is it is it Gupta? Yeah. Okay. He is the co-founder and CEO of Nesh. What's up, man? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Not bad, man. Not bad. Doing good. Just we've just heard a lot of good things about you. So and then we linked up at the the last happy hour, and so I was like, we're right. gonna get Sid on the show. Yeah. Oh, you were at the last happy hour. Yeah, I was. Oh, yeah. okay. Cool. Cool. Well, you office here at the Canon, right? Yes, so, we do. Just. Uh, Two doors down from yeah, here, so guys. The happy hour wasn't too far of a stretch for you to make it, hopefully. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Neither was it today. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. It's good for the logistics. We'll have to do more content with you since you're right down the hallway. Yeah. So give us a uh, high-level overview of what Nesh is. Like I just told you before, I have no idea what you guys do, so I'm excited to hear about it. Jake says that you guys have a really cool product and have traction, so I'm excited to learn about it. What do you, what do you guys do at Nesh? Wow, you have no idea. That'll be exciting. Yeah, right. I have no so. idea. <laughs> So Nesh is a smart assistant for oil and gas. It's like Alexa or Siri for oil and gas. So the way I describe it is like think of Alexa, but when she went to school and got a degree in petroleum engineering and geoscience and worked in the oil patch for a few years, read a lot of papers and journals, and that's sort of how Nesh was created. I like that pitch. Yeah, Alexa worked out in the oil field, so she's kind of rough now. <laughs> <laughs> she wears a hard hat, yeah. Alexa's got a mouth on her now probably. <laughs> So how how is this technology being utilized? So obviously, you know, I know what Siri and Alexa are. I know how we use them from a consumer standpoint. So how is this deployed in oil and gas operations? And, you know, what's the value proposition of it? All right. So the value proposition is to get answers to your technical questions in a much faster way. So we can return, we, we could return an answer to a technical question in 30% less time than it would take someone to go and find the answer, dig through some data spreadsheet or through a dashboard and try to find that answer. Instead, we just like retrieve the answer for you based on the natural language question that you asked. And also we source information from multiple sources. So like public data sources that are out there on the internet or a commercial public data source or your company's own internal data. And then we just bring that all together. And depending on the question that was asked, we find it for you. So it's especially useful in a meeting setting where people are all there and somebody asks a simple question like, hey, how many wells did we drill in the last quarter? To even a simple question like that, somebody has to sometimes dart out of the meeting room and say, hey, boss, let me go look look it up for you. Takes like 15, 20 minutes. In this sort of a setting, you can instantaneously ask that question and Nesh will come back with the answer for you. So is it more geared for, you know, engineer that's looking for questions internally or is it something that like a consumer could use that like out in the field like a field hand that had a technical question you know regarding maybe some downhole formula could they use it in that instance as well yeah right now we are the reason we're focused on the office people only because it's a web app so it runs on your laptop's browser i mean i think for us to really target the people in the field we'll have to have a mobile app available so they can just nobody will pull out a laptop in the field but I think the use cases will eventually extend out to the field because I think people want to be hands-free and there was just talk. is like they walk up to a well and they say, hey, Nesh, when was the last well, tel- well test performed on this well? Or 
what was the outcome of that well test and they could really see those numbers of the thing that he said like i want to yeah. look at a downhole tool a bha some kind of specification yeah so in that case they could pull that up too but right now we're focused on the people in the office so c suite guys executives middle management and engineers and analysts yeah i just think about it from field hand perspective like i'm out there you know i've got my little piece of shit dell laptop that every oil company uses and i'm trying to dig through files and spreadsheets to find some information if i just had a mobile application it's like hey you know what's what's the answer to this and it came out and hopefully it runs a little bit smoother than siri like every time i try asking siri something i don't know if it's like my west texas accent but she doesn't <laughs> fucking understand me and so it's always a <laughs> communication barrier between us two but so so what's your background you know were you in oil and gas before you guys started working on nesh kind of give us some insight you know from your background and how you got up to this point sure i don't know how far you guys want me to go back but i mean I, yeah <laughs> so i was born and raised in india i have a undergrad in petroleum engineering from india i started working in schlumberger out of school and then i worked in bombay for a couple of years so during that time i was working in the field offshore onshore also in the office for a little bit two years later i quit to get my masters and i came here to ut got my masters and i joined back schlumberger after that so I spent most of my career at Shlomoji, a little bit at Shell. And during that time, I was working in the field and then also consulting for oil and gas companies around Houston and North America in general. Last a couple of years before I left Shlomoji to start this full time, I was a product manager for some of the oil and gas software like Petrol and OFM. I was looking after those before I quit to do Nesh full time. What year did you start working for Shlomoji? What year? Yeah. 2006. Yeah, when I started, yeah. Okay. And so you were in your product manager for their digital solutions for the majority of that time. So you're already kind of familiar with the, the technology space just from that experience. Yeah, some of it. So I was not the geoscience side. So I was more focused on the production and reservoir side. And then, so that's where like petrol production, petrol reservoir and OFM. And then, then also towards when Slumaji started moving towards the cloud, then the cloud initiatives that they undertook, I was part of that team as well. Very interesting. I always like, you know, when we see solutions come from people that were, you know, in the field and saw, you know, saw the problems that were dealt with firsthand. It seems like those are some of the best solutions that are out there. So what kind of led to the idea of Nesh and when was the idea conceived? Yeah, so it happened during the downturn. So I think it was 2015. It was the oil crash when like 2014 yeah. and mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So I think 2015 was one of my friends. He was laid off from a job. He used to work for an operator, a reservoir engineer. He's a very smart guy. And he was looking for a job for the longest time and couldn't even get an interview. It just felt weird to me. He's like, why can't he even get an interview? So I knew another friend of mine at an operator, and he was looking to hire someone as an RE in his company. So I connected them up and I said, why don't you guys talk? Maybe there's something mutual that he could figure out. So long story short, he ended up not getting the job. But the reason my friend gave for not hiring him was like he didn't know how the he didn't know how to use the reservoir simulator that we use in our company. He was trained on a different reservoir simulator, and I feared that was a very weird reason to reject someone for a technical role that they don't know how to use the software that you use in your company. And I think it's a very systemic issue in the oil and gas industry. It's sort of like in the financial sector, if you don't know how to use a Bloomberg terminal, you can't get a job in a in a bank. So I think it's similar. If you look at a job posting in the oil and gas industry, it always says must know how to use X Y Z. So that's where I think the idea came from. It's like, why don't we create something that people can use in the industry without having to learn a new piece of software? Just walk up to it naturally and then like just speak the question in English or whatever language and then just get the answer that they need because at the end of the day, that's what people are looking for, answers to questions. 
So that's where the inception of the idea came from. And then we were thinking about the form factor of how this should be like, and then eventually the smart assistant came about because it was about around the time when it was getting like ubiquitous, like people were using smart assistants like in their home. So we looked at like Siri, Alexa, then we were thinking, should we integrate with something like, like a Siri or Alexa? But then we figured, well, people would want to see some kind of a visual analysis. Oil and gas is very visual. People would want to see like the response to it, not just a voice talking back to them. And back then, there was no, there wasn't an, an Echo Show or a Google Home, like which has a screen to it now. So we decided that we'll use some of Amazon and Google services, but we'll create a web app where it gives the user a rich visual interface, but at the same time, they can talk to it when they want to. So that's how it's sort of the idea of Nesh evolved. Yeah, so I kind of think about this, and Jake, we've talked about this before, like when you're using communication tools like Slack, like how cool would it be for engineers to be able to, you know, put in a, a text command, like, you know, when was the last time this well was tested in Slack and get that information so this idea really runs in parallel with mm -hmm. that. Is that something that you guys are looking at doing in the future, you know, using team-based communication tools like yeah. Slack and integrating that? Yeah, I mean, the so we're using a Google for our natural language processing. So that service allows us to integrate with like any existing infrastructure that a company has like Slack or Facebook Messenger or Telegram or anything that allows that API to hook into it. The other thing that we were thinking about, which is quite exciting, is like being able to just text Nash. So we have like a phone number set up for every company. You could just text Nash and say, hey, Nash, what is the, the question that you want to ask? And that completely removes the UI from the equation. So all you do is like you use your phone, just like you're texting a friend, you do that. And on the other end, Nash replies back. And then if any visual needs to be seen, we just send in a link and you can click on that link and it takes you to that visual that you need to see. So how do you guys input this information how, how does that go because i think about it in like terms of our wells in oklahoma and like the other day i needed the i needed the coordinates on our well and this would have been awesome to have instead of me having to you know open up my computer go to my google drive you know search through a file on that well and find it you know i could text nesh and get that information how do you guys go about actually aggregating that information for an oil company like for us it's easy we've, we've only got a few wells so it take a day and we can input all that information but how do you guys go about doing it for a, a large company so i mean we do have certain data sources that we connect to now so like for instance ihs drilling info we also talk to a well database so mm. john after you heard of your podcast i talked to john and i was like hey john i didn't know that you guys have such a rich offering in the data and the price point is amazing right so I talked to him and he was so open about like just having some kind of partnership because he was looking for someone who could essentially leverage their data through an API partnership. And same thing with us, we have an open architecture too. So we talked to John and we were looking at like how we can connect through APIs. So similarly, that would be one way of loading public data in through an API connection or through uploading the data through an Excel file or through a CSV. In-house data sort of gets more trickier because it, the format varies from one data source to the other. So we have created a schema on our end that we try to map the client's data to. So that way we can standardize it even though we don't know what an unknown data source that we might come across. And then the unstructured data, which would be the third sort of the most common one. That one, I think it varies from case to case. So we are looking at like, we are scraping unstructured data from the internet, like press releases, technical papers, SEC reports, investor presentations, answering questions from within those questions. And, but then that unstructured data it doesn't really need to be indexed or it can you can just like crawl it and on the fly you can generate answers based on the question that was asked that's so cool to hear about 
you guys here in World Database and John here on the podcast and forming a partnership out of that. Yeah, I think I, love I, that. I heard about it on the podcast and also the the event that you guys did in WeWorks. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. John told us that he got a, after, because I think that podcast released almost, you know, a couple of days after the Energy Tech Night. And John said that next day he had 36 leads. He said from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. he was just giving demos that next day. So <laughs> it's awesome to hear that another tech company heard about that as well and saw opportunity for it's partnership. Also, it's also exciting and refreshing because whenever I first came into the industry, I don't know, like six years ago, especially on the tech side, it was a bunch of legacy companies who would never work with each other ever. Yeah. And we're seeing a com- the, the tide change and all, all these new companies are wanting to work together and share APIs and you know, kind of have this knowledge share between them. And I think it's extremely refreshing because we know that not one vendor can do it all. Right. It's an I mean, incredibly complex industry. Yeah, and also, I mean, with the size of the the companies that we all have, there's no way we could have an authority over the IP in the industry, right? We know we won't be able to build everything that's possible. That so we eventually want to create partnerships. I mean, just like the Amazon or the Alexa ecosystems, like you can add skills to Alexa. That's the our that's our concept too. It's like you can create an API partnership and just add skills to Nash, or we call it power ups. And then you can have like a well database power up, a well data labs power up, or something else, right? And then you can just ask a question to Nesh, and all Nesh does is invoke that tool and then gets back the answer for you. Yeah, that's really good for you guys because, you know, if you can just be a connector between all of the software and you're just bringing in the data that essentially they're providing, and Nesh can drive answers from any of those solutions that a oil company is using. Jake was saying that you, you guys have good traction now. How many clients are you guys running Nesh on? So we are currently working with four operators. Um, so Equinor, Pioneer, Anadarko, and Hess. Those are great. Those are great by the customers. <laughs> so yeah, we got four operators. They just happen to be four of the biggest independents. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty amazing, right? I mean, so we, we got for our early traction with Pioneer and then Equinor came on board. So I think they've been very good supporters of Nesh from the start. And then also... Just having that voice of customer early on, so mm-hmm. you know that whatever you're building, somebody needs it. So early on, when we got our first customer, we wanted to make sure we weren't just scratching just one company's itch. It was really a, it was a real thing, right? Because it was a new technology, so we weren't really sure if people would use a voice assistant in in an, in an enterprise environment. I mean, yeah, I, I thought people wanted it, but we wanted to validate that thought. So when Equinor came on board, just talking to all the people in their in their organization, onshore and offshore, I think that really solidified the idea that this something like this could work in the oil and gas industry. And then eventually the other operators came on board after that. So what was it like getting that first pilot customer on board? And what was the kind of adoption life cycle of that? Was it pretty tough getting getting the first buy-in? Yeah, it was. I mean, it takes a whole lot of meetings. You guys know that too, right? I mean, it's not just like, here's here's a demo of Nash and the next day they want it. But it, Pioneer moved pretty quickly. So we got an NDA signed with them like two days after we had our first demo. But then eventually after that, it, it just takes a little bit longer. What really helped was Unique Ventures. And I'm sure you guys mm-hmm. talked oh, yeah. to them the last time, right? So Amy and Thomas, we are one of the first startups who are working with them. So they they have been excellent, right? In helping us introduce to all of these customers. So Equinor, Hess, and Anadarko came through Unique. So Pioneer was just something we initially started on, and then the other customers came through Unique Ventures. So they've been really good in setting up those introductions and then like helping us orchestrate the pilots, setting up the success criteria for the pilot, making sure we have something measurable in place. Cool, yeah. When we had Unique on, they said that uh, they're, that Hess and Anadarko and 
Equinor, where they're three amigos. So, mm-hmm. you know, all those companies are really forward thinking and good at adopting technology. And, you know, Pioneer Natural Resources is a company that doesn't get a lot of credit for that as well. But, you know, they, they've got great innovation teams over there as well that are always looking at how can we change our model internally and what technologies can we, you know, use mm-hmm. to do that. So that's another company that's a, a good target to try to get implementations into. So how did you guys go about, you know, with the pilot customer with that Pioneer? Was that just a, a cold outreach to them? How did, how was the process for getting into them? Yes, yeah, so Pioneer was through a mutual friend. So we were at a conference and then we met the, a mutual friend of mine introduced me to the technology and innovation director of Pioneer. It was David Witten. He doesn't work at Pioneer anymore, but he was. And so that was, that formed the connection. And then Nash was very early on at that point. We just had a barely working prototype. So we showed it to David and he was like super stoked to see Nesh the way it was, just answering some of those basic questions. So he introduced me to some of the data scientists who were working in their organization and then it eventually went and went from there. And actually the first use case that we started implementing for Pioneer came from their CEO, Tim Dove. He stepped down, but he was the CEO until like a couple of weeks ago. So the use case came from him was they he wanted to just walk into the office and ask a question about competitive intelligence, like, hey, how many rigs is Marathon running in the past month or where are they drilling their wells? Where are we drilling their wells and trying to compare Pioneer to the other operators? But he didn't want to open up an Excel spreadsheet or a Spotify dashboard. So that was that's where the use case came from. And then, yeah, we, we started with that and we looked at other, uh, then it went from the C-suite to more of the end users or the, the engineers and then the management team. So that's where I think the use case is sort of morphed from C-suite to, the, to more of that, the technical folks in the company. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being a good strategy where you're building it out for like this high level, you know, public data information. And then as time goes on and you progress and evolve on the product, you can start to kind of get in the weeds and, you know, build out some of those technical yeah. applications for the, the guys on the ground. So that's interesting. With Unique Ventures, was this a, uh, a partnership where they, they invested in you guys or did they just uh, work with you from an advisory capacity and help get you implemented into these companies? Yeah, they're not they're not investors, but they are, um, yeah, as you said, advisors, accelerators. So they're on hybrid accelerator because the the niche uh, is sort of companies they get investment, but they don't get traction. That's the hardest part to mm-hmm. improve. So Unique was trying to fulfill that gap in the market. Is how do you get a small startup, especially in the oil and gas industry, where it's hard to m- make market penetration? How do you get startups connected with oil and gas companies? So they didn't invest, but they helped us execute those pilots and then help us connect with all of those customers and then formulate those pilots. And it's not, it's the engagement doesn't just end the pilot itself and make sure that the pilot eventually commercializes. And then you, you have a, you have your SaaS business model, business model rolling into those companies eventually. Okay. So speaking of that, I think, can you talk a little bit about what your business model is and how you guys monetize? Yeah, sure. So there are a couple of ways we do that. So our eventual business model is a freemium SaaS model. But right now, the pilots are just time and material. So we are essentially giving people nations, showing them nations, saying here are the features that we build in Nash so far. But tell us what kind of things would you like to see in Nash so you can start using it tomorrow if you if you could. So they give us a set of features that they want and then what kind of data sources they would want Nash to connect to. What kind of technical workflows would they want to build in Nash? And we build those out for them. And those are time-boxed trials, so we keep them to six to eight weeks so as to they can quickly see a turnaround. And those are just time and material. And then eventually, once they start, when, when they like what they see and they want to keep continue using Nash, then it turns into a SaaS model. 
and then that SaaS is based on the kind of data that's connected to. So we have a public data edition and a private data edition. Mm-hmm. So the public data edition just connects to IHS drilling info and like, and then the private data edition connects to the internal data sources. Okay. So speaking of the internal data sources, obviously like this is the world that I've lived in for six years. You come into a company, they're like, we love Nash, right? But half of their stuff is done on spreadsheets. Uh, yeah. What's next? Is it, is it, do you guys just say that, can you work with those guys or do you need to come in and, and implement some systems or how does that work? Because we know that data is just an absolute mess when it comes to internal data. Right. So, I mean, we are, we are being careful about what we are doing in the data space because we want to be a product company, not a service company. And yeah. also we don't want to be a data management product company either. Yeah. Right. So for that, we ask the customer, like, what kind of data sources do you want to connect? Do you want us to connect to? Do you already have a data aggregator in space? Like Pioneer, for instance, they had a company called Energy IQ they were working with. So Energy IQ does a lot of heavy lifting on the data. They clean up the data. They they combine all of it together. And they give this clean rest endpoint to any other third party that wants to sit on top. So a Spotfire dashboard wants to sit on top. They can sit on top of Energy IQ. So that made life very easy for us. We didn't have to do any of that dirty work of cleaning up the data. We just went and sat on top of Energy IQ. So something like that, if that would be an ideal situation, but we, we could go into, if something like that doesn't exist, then we would want to know what kind of specific data sources we could connect to in which the schema is sort of in place already. Mm. But if it's like, like, like you said, like it's a mess of Excel spreadsheets, then it's probably not the right use case. That we, want you, we want you to hook into our file cabinets and our <laughs> spreadsheets. <laughs> you laugh, but I remember talking to... Trace a while back, and they said one of the biggest barriers for them is that companies will love their technology, which scans, you know, leases, and then they're like, "Yeah, that's great. We want to use it. Here's our file cabinet full of documents." And like, yeah, unfortunately, our it's our like machine you, learning doesn't crawl through file cabinets. Yeah. It's like you ask Nash a question, and you have these like gnomes that just go through the, <laughs> they find, they like find the answer really quickly, and they spit it back out. Yeah, all these spiders come out. Yeah. <laughs> So when you guys uh, decided to do this, you're working on this full-time now, Correct, I suspect. Yeah. So when did you kind of make that jump? So obviously, you know, you're, you know you, you've got a good job in the oil field. Your other friend that had the idea, he was looking for, the, you know, looking for a job, had no luck. So I'm sure that he was kind of like taking some of the bulk of working on this in the early stages. When did you make the jump to work on this full-time? Yeah, so my friend who I talked about, he wasn't involved in Nash. So he eventually found a job with a different operator. Oh, okay, cool. Right. So, but the, the idea of Nash was like gnawing at me. It's like, we should do something about it. Right. But I know that we couldn't, you need to put like hundred percent of your time to be able to do something. So the first thing for me, so I'm, I'm a petroleum engineer by training. I can't code. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do I develop the product? That was the hardest bit for me. It's like, how do I find a co-founder? Yeah. So that took a while. So you need to make sure you have the right co-founder. And then let's talk about that because that's one of the biggest barriers we see. You know, we talk to a lot of petroleum engineers that want to go off and do their own thing. And, you know, just like you, they're not developers. They don't code. And finding that technical co-founder is extremely challenging, especially in Houston. So can we dive into that a little bit and talk about that story and that process? Yeah, so initially I was working with a technical co-founder who I knew personally, and then that guy, he had some health issues, so he he quit. He had a genetic eye disorder, so his vision started deteriorating. He couldn't code anymore in front of a computer. So he quit, and that that was sort of, and then we were in talks with with people about, like, here's like a version of Nesh that you could see. But then we didn't have a product anymore and we couldn't continue with that anymore. So we said, okay, so now I need to find a technical co-founder. So that was the biggest, like the one of the first challenges that I faced 
example. It's like, how do I find someone else who I can trust? Right? Because, I mean, starting a company is like marrying someone, right? You need to like have complete trust in them and, and you know it's a, it's a long-term relationship. So the first step was for me to like reach out to my first and second degree connections to see if there's someone who is interested or they know somebody who, could, who might be potentially interested in this. So that took a while and we exhausted all the resources and that didn't really lead anywhere. So I was talking to a lot of advisors and mentors in Houston, like, what should I do? So one of them advises like post it on AngelList because that's sort of a self-selected platform. Anyone who is on there is already interested in, in startups. So I did, I posted that like a CTO position on AngelList. It was just a sweat equity position. There was no salary. I didn't have any cash to give. So, <laughs> and then through AngelList, I met Seth. So Seth, who's our CTO right now. So he, he also went to UT and coincidentally at the same time as I did, I just didn't know him. And afterwards when we talked, we actually went to some of the same concerts at UT together and we just didn't <laughs> know that. <laughs> it's a small world. Yeah. So he and I, we, we connected. We, we actually like, talked for the longest period of time, like whiteboarded stuff just to get and get a feel for like each other. He wanted to make sure that I was motivated enough to continue this long term. And the same thing for me, just to understand his technical capabilities. So we spent a long time just like getting to know each other, understanding like the technical background of each one of us. And then he just had a kid. So it was a long it was a big commitment for him too. And then eventually so we both decided to quit our jobs on the same day. So I was like calling him in the morning. Hey, said you're gonna quit, right? I'm gonna give my notice today. So, so he and I we both quit. So he used to work for Cisco, the tech Cisco, not the food Cisco. That's yeah. like a yeah. true like <laughs> trust fall. It's like hey, I'm about to quit my job. You're gonna quit your job. Let's <laughs> yeah. see if we can really trust we each other. This. <laughs> so yeah, so he and I we both quit. I think it was end of July, and then we started building Nesh. And we said, okay, so this is now we know that there are customers who want to talk to us. So let's. Let's start building that. And we had the opportunity to sort of re-architect and choose our tech stack again. So that's when we started building again Nash, and then it sort of evolved from there. So you guys did that at the end of July. So that puts us at a little under a year that you guys have been working on this Correct. full time. Yeah. Okay. Is it still you two just operating it or do you, do you no, have any more people on the team? It's four of us right now. And this past week we made our first full time hire. Awesome. So his name is Travis. He's going to join us from next Monday. Okay. Is that on the development side to keep building product? Yeah. So on the dev side, so our hiring strategy for this year is more on the data scientists and devs. And then starting year two, we'll have a look at more of the BD side and marketing. Yeah. Okay. So for you guys, you know, you've got these, these big operators, the Pioneers, the Anadarkos. What do you kind of see the product going? Is this going to be a solution for smaller operators as well? I mean, is the technology scalable for you guys? I, I just think about the data integration being the biggest bottleneck, you know, for these yeah. companies to be able to use it, which is, you know, this isn't a problem that's unique to Nesh. It's a problem that's, you know, widespread in the industry for any digital solutions. So is this something that you guys in the next couple of years are just going to focus on the big operators or do you see it kind of being scaled across the market? Yeah, so my mission starting out was to focus on just the mid-cap to the small operators. So that that tail end of the curve, we didn't want to, we purposefully didn't talk to the, the super majors because the pilots take a while with them. So that's the reason we started out uh, with these guys. And the reason we started with the larger companies, just because that they have the cash to pay for the paid pilots, right? Because we need that initially. And our idea is we'll build those features for the pilots, uh, for those customers. And then eventually when Nesh gets to a point where she has a critical mass of functionalities, 
then we'll take that to the operators who can just essentially try Nesh out of the box and they don't really have to do a pilot anymore. Just download Nesh or go to our website and then just integrate the data and take Nesh for a spin. So that's another way we want to reduce the cycle time to the sales cycle for Nesh as well. So people can essentially try out Nesh because that's our promise, right? You don't need to have a training course to learn how to use Nesh. Just go to our website, ask a question, get an answer to it. So that's eventually where we want to get to. But I think we have to go through about six to eight pilots eventually and then build those critical mass of functionality over the first couple of years or so. And then at that point, we'll have enough that we can go to the other, the smaller operators in the market. So what's the kind of reception from oil and gas? Because as I think about, you know, voice activated technology, I think about it from a consumer standpoint. And obviously with Alexa, Siri, Google, et cetera, you know, these are still technologies that aren't widely adopted by the consumer market. Like I don't use them and I'm a pretty forward thinking guy and I don't use them on a day-to-day basis. Like what are people in the oil industry, you know, I think that people can understand the value proposition, but what I could see being hard is making that tangible. Like, you know, how do you, how do you put a metric on how much time you saved by just ask, you know, asking Nesh compared to opening up your laptop and going into your Dropbox and, you know, finding files, et cetera. So how do you guys kind of overcome that hurdle of, you know, making your value proposition tangible for these companies? Yeah, one of the things that I experience when I use Siri or Alexa is how often they fail. It's mm-hmm. like, and, and they say, I don't, I don't understand the question that you mean. And that's sort of frustrating. And at that point, there's no way you can give feedback to like Apple or Amazon that it didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. But for us, we wanted to build that feedback mechanism into Nesh. And because for an enterprise environment, there are a couple of things a user needs. It's being First, it's like improve that stickiness of the product so they can they can continue using it. Even when they hit a wall, they can, steep, they can still remain engaged with Nesh. And the second is the remove that black boxiness of the product. Who would trust a magic eight ball that gives you an answer and you don't know how that answer was generated? So for us to be able to show the user how that answer was generated, that was the other thing because if Alexa gives you an answer, you don't know how she came up with the answer or what data source she crawled to get that answer. So those were the two things we had to address is how to keep the user engaged and how do you provide the traceability of the answer to the user. So that's what we worked on the previous like few months. So with Nesh, what you can do is like, we know that Nesh will fail at some point. She'll hit a wall. But what you can do is just like Reddit, you can like upvote and downvote answers in Nesh. So when you get a good answer, you can upvote it. That gives a positive reinforcement and it retrains Nesh to give that answer or calculate that answer better the next time. And when you give a negative reinforcement, she will ask you, well, what should I have done instead? And then you can sort of guide Nesh through the steps in which you want her to take the next time. And the second part about the transparency is like you can sort of spin Nesh around and look under the hood and see how that answer was generated. So she'll show you a decision tree, like what data source was picked, what entity was selected, what calculation was run, what visualization was applied to it, and what text was generated at the end. So you can sort of walk through that decision tree and see how that answer came through. That's so cool that you brought up the reference to Reddit because Jake and I have been talking a lot over the last several weeks about Reddit-style features or like product hunt features where petroleum engineers can go in and upvote or downvote. I mean, that's some of the best feedback that you can get right. for you know when you're developing a product and uh, trying to refine it. So it's yeah. really cool that you brought that up. Yeah, getting that social input, I think, is something that's we've seen it in so many different consumer products, like you mentioned, like with Reddit and the product hunt and the different places like that. And if you even think back to like the early days of like, I remember, I don't know, like say mid 2000s, forums were kind of like at 
peak, right? So I was a, I was a part of a ton of different forms, like car forms, motorcycle forms. I'm still a part of a bunch of forms. <laughs> Those are cesspools full of a lot of bro science. Yeah, back it's, in yeah, the day. it's so much bro science. And cars and supplements. Like, <laughs> those yeah. were, that was a weird time with the internet. <laughs> but the thing about those, the one thing that they did really well was they drove engagement you know, more than anything. And if there's some way that you can replicate that with new features in a way that's productive for, you know, say your product or your company, I think it's going to be hugely impactful for driving development, you know, for you guys. Yeah. I mean, we know that we won't be able to sustain Nesh if you don't have that community input into it because people ask questions in all different ways. I, I talk to Nesh in a certain way that someone else won't. So how do you, how do you scale that? So through that, we had to have some kind of functionality through which people can train Nesh by themselves and not having to keep coming back to us every time they hit a, they ask a wrong question and Nesh doesn't provide an answer. So that's the reason why we chose the tech stack that we chose and also to sort of build that feedback mechanism into Nesh so that they feel engaged even when they hit a wall, they can still sort of continue training Nesh so that next time it can answer the question better. Yeah, I think that's great. There's actually a software that we use to uh, transcribe our podcasts and over time, it's a machine learning algorithm. And over time, you know, it refines and gets better. And you can add in corrections and build up a vocabulary. That way, the next time, it's even better than the time before. And so that's, you know, speaking of Anadarko, the first transcription I did, I thought Anadarko was Banana Darko. <laughs> and so now it's just been hard for me to get that out of my mind. Anytime I think of Anadarko, I just want to call oh, him Banana yeah. Darko. <laughs> so... Kind of going back to your personal story, you know, we get a lot of engineers that are looking to jump out and start their own company. Do you have any advice for those guys? Because obviously, you know, it just takes grit and guts to quit your job and, and oil and gas when you have a nice paycheck and kind of go out there and take a leap. Do you have any advice that really kind of sticks out to you and that you can draw from your challenges of going through that? Yeah, I mean, so I haven't accomplished a whole lot yet. So just take my advice with a grain of salt. But one of the things I would say is just make sure whatever you're building, the market needs it. Is sometimes yeah. we have a hammer looking for a nail, right? So find that problem that an industry really wants solved. And if you feel that your product does it and you really believe in it, then I think it's worth the leap. And the biggest thing I would say is like have that team with you that you feel can execute on it. Because it's often like, and I've heard this investor say this, and I think it's true, is like a good team with a bad idea is better than a bad team with a good idea. So make sure that you have that team with you who can execute on that idea that you have and take you uh, past that finish line. So if you if you believe that you have the team in place and you have a right idea that you're, or that uh, that problem that you're solving, which is a real problem, then I think it's, it's, it's worth taking that risk. Yeah, absolutely. Execution is everything in my mind. So I like that quote a lot. Kind of you know, picking your brain a little bit, what I, I find interesting is, you know, when you come from a, a technical background in engineering, you know, the majority of people that fall within this, uh, with this, within this job kind of think in the box more, you know, they think in a, in a set parameters for you, you know, obviously entrepreneurship being the founder, you have to think outside of the box a lot. Is that, you know, is this something that you knew that you were, kind of an entrepreneur, creative type your whole life and you went into petroleum engineering just as a trade or was this more of, you know, you've always been technical and you just saw some, you know, messed up things in oil and gas is like, there's got to be a w better way to do this. You know, how was that transformation for you kind of personally? That's an interesting one. I haven't really given that much, given this too much of a thought, <laughs> so you might have to edit it later on. But so, I mean, yeah, so I wasn't a petroleum engineer by like by birth. So I initially 
came into mining engineering was the first degree that I went into school for. And then the first like walk I took down the mine shaft, I was like, yeah, this is not it for me. I can't do this like every day. So then I switched three years to petroleum engineering. But yeah, I mean, I've been a techie most of my life, but I also have like that that intersection of science and liberal arts. Like I'm a design nerd myself. So I create all the marketing stuff, the collateral that we need for Nash, and then also the UI, UI UX design that we do for Nash. That is something also I, I, I really like dabbling with like Photoshop and Sketch. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that really helped me. It's, it's sort of like that left brain, right brain thing. But I think that just helps in general because I feel like design is a big thing people overlook in technical software. It's like you try try to pack so much science into it that the, in, the, in the end, the software becomes so bloated, it's hard to use. And that was one of the things we do at Nash is to keep ourselves a little bit design forward so we can bring that B2C aspect to the B2B world where the software itself is like, sort of, it looks nice because you can trust it. It, it looks so elegant that you feel that this is something that I want to use and the work doesn't feel work, it's, it feels a little bit like play-like. And I, I, I like using the software instead of like having, I have to use the software. Yeah, I think you're the second startup in a row that's been here on the podcast that emphasizes how much attention and resources they put into design and the user experience. You know, Corva was in here and they've got great traction. All right, and yeah. it's really because I believe their software, is just, it looks clean and it's very easy to use. And you look, historically speaking, at software that's been in the oil and gas space, it's clunky, it's old, it's hard to use and navigate. And that's not what people are used to anymore. I mean, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon came in and you know they've really set some high standards for what uh, software should be, especially in, in the consumer space. So now everyone's demanding that we have that in, at the enterprise it's level. It's kind of like going from like black and white TV to color TV. It's kind of the same thing with you have the black and white software that was made in 92 versus, you know, stuff with great yeah, UI now, today. Now we're on LED curved screens, dog. So oh, we're taking man. it to the next level. So <laughs> that's what I'm saying. The, the software that's coming out in oil and gas better be at that level because that's what people are expecting now. So. Yep. You know, I think that's something that's so overlooked, like you said, and, and it almost sounds kind of stupid, but we've heard it from investors. Like, yeah, I like this software just because it looks nice. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's a subconscious thing too, right? I mean, you don't, some people might not realize what the choices that they're making just based on the design that they see in front of them. I mean, personally, I like Sketch better than Photoshop just because the design of that tool is so much better than to use than Photoshop for UX design, right? So. So simple things like that, there's no real a trigger that I chose that one tool over the other, even though they both do sort of similar things. Mm-hmm. But just because one's design is better over the other. So I think the design eventually will become an edge in oil and gas software too when there's so much saturation of the newer technologies. Mm-hmm. I think people would pick something that is more intuitive and more design forward than the other guys. Absolutely. I mean, you can look at like look at Apple. For instance, I mean, Apple leads the way when it, you know, in iPhone ownership compared to Android, even though Android's such a more powerful machine, I choose Apple products over anything else, even though I know I can get probably better value for my money in other products, but it's just the the design and the, the interface and it just makes right. it seamless for me. And I love how everything integrates. So even though it's not even as powerful as some other options out there. I still pick it just because from the, the design perspective and it's not just me. That's the majority of people out there. That's why Apple's one of the top companies right now. Mm-hmm. You like the blue bubbles over the green bubbles? I was about to say the same thing. Like, <laughs> if you got a green bubble, get out of here. Like, I'm, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> it's so messed up. Like I just, I heard, I heard yesterday that one of the new Android phones, like 
if your phone's going low on power, we can put our phones together and I can transfer battery power over to your phone. I'm like, yeah, that's cool as shit. Yeah. Like, and what's Apple? Apple's like, yeah, we upgraded our camera. <laughs> 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 so anyways, man, what are some goals that you have before we close out? What are you guys really looking to do in 2019? Like what, what's priority number one for you guys? Biggest one is commercializing the technology. So we are pre-commercial right now. So we want to hope to commercialize by ATC this year. So by third quarter or yeah, third quarter, fourth quarter this year around that time. So that's the biggest goal we want to accomplish. And then also just hiring a great team behind us who can help us with that goal. And then just getting a bit more market traction. So we have a few great customers we are working with. We want to make sure we are showing next to the other people in the industries to get their feedback and also understand like what kind of use cases they want to build into it so that we can sort of build that critical mass of functionality like I talked about. Very cool. Yeah, I want to get Nesh at one of our energy tech nights. That way you guys can come out and demo it and show everybody the product because it sounds really cool. Yeah, I think, uh, Yeah, our next one will be on cybersecurity, so we can't have you guys on that one. But <laughs> one after that, we'll make sure you guys get in it. So anyways, Sid, can people find you on LinkedIn? Yes. Are you on LinkedIn? Yeah. Okay, so put a link to Sid on LinkedIn. And then what is Nesh's website? It's hellonesh.io. Hellonesh.io. Man, I like, I it. like it. I like that. It's brandable. All right, guys. So if you need to reach out to Sid, if you want a demo, you can find him on LinkedIn or go to hellonesh.io. Sid, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thanks, Colin. Thanks, Jake. Yep. Great talking to you guys. Good talking to you. All right, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please take two seconds to leave us a rating review. As always, thank you guys for listening. You guys make all of this possible. We love you guys, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Cool.